Hello and welcome to Bluebells Forever, a podcast with interviews of Bluebell dancers past and present. Join Sherry Lewis, a Bluebell herself, as she leads us on a journey through story and experience. And now here's Sherry. So welcome Grant Filippo. And I have to admit, there's several times I have to redo these because of audio quality or I've actually like had video or the recordings disappear somewhere in the cloud or on my computer. But this one, I'm glad we get to redo because it was such a fun interview and I wanna make sure that the, the quality is better and that we get to hear your full story. Because I met you at the Bluebell reun reunion last year in Paris and all this time, I've assumed that you were a Kelly boy and reached out to you because I've seen your amazing pictures of uh, your travels and of the time in Paris and assumed, but that's not, your path has been Bluebell adjacent, I would say. So I would love to just let you say hi, and then we'll just start with like what you were like as a kid. <laughs> Did you like to, uh, you know, were you into art or dance or dress up because that was my kids thing is all my costumes in a box were just like the most fun thing in the neighborhood was to come and play in the costume box. Well, when I was a kid, um, I was very artistic when um, my mother was called into the school when I was in kindergarten. The kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Baird, um, pulled my mother in thinking, and my mom, of course, is thinking, oh, he's done something wrong because my mother thought I did everything wrong. <laughs> and she came in and she showed her all of the different uh, pieces of art. And she said, your son's going to be an artist. And my mother said, she looked at the chicken scratchings and she was like, there's no way in the world that that kid's gonna be an artist. And oh. uh, ironically, she was proven wrong because when I was in sixth grade, and thank God for teachers, I absolutely adore teachers because they helped me a lot with my life and, you know, pointing me in the right direction. They had submitted me without me knowing, they had submitted my artwork to the Des Moines Art Museum and Gallery, which is the biggest museum for art in Des Moines. And they had a scholarship program that fortunately I won the scholarship to go. Every weekend I would go there and take classes. And so in sixth grade, the very first um, year that I was there, I was a student and I took every kind of art class known to mankind. And the following year they hired me as an instructor. And I actually taught people who had been artists for years and I was only in seventh grade. And wow. um, that started all of it. Of course, I had always sang I did, I love to dance, but I didn't have real training until um, I won another scholarship in ninth grade that I got to go to Tokyo, Missouri to the Mule Barn Theater. And it was an actual mule barn, which was a fascinating place. And I was on scholarship there for the summer symposium and got to take all the classes and learn how to do incredible sets and what have you. And um, when I returned, I got hired by our theme park that Iowa had called Adventureland. They still have it. And I was hired as a costumed character originally. 
which is where you dance in the parades in these gigantic mm. costumes that were made by Jim Henson. The shoes mm. alone were 20 pounds a piece. The costumes were 40 degrees hotter. On the inside was my first introduction to G-strings, because if you didn't wear one, <laughs> While I was there, they um, sort of like latched on to me. My mentor, Ellen Bell Foster, she was a dance instructor that had created probably the most famous um, dance teacher and choreographer in Iowa named Richard Powell. And um, they basically hired me even during the... the um, winter time, which, you know, the theme park in Iowa closes because we get snow and all that. But they hired me to do the, um, be like the company manager, the stage manager. We would um, prep the showrooms. We had, I believe, five showrooms. And um, only one of them didn't have um, sets and costumes. Well, I had costumes, but it was one of those hydraulic stages like they have at Disneyland that comes out of the ground and they do a show there. We had an amphitheater. We had an Old West saloon show. And then we had the Palace Theater, which was uh, the biggest of all of them. And that's the one that I spent most of the time being involved with that. And um, I also learned how to be a projectionist there because in between the shows at the Palace Theater, we would play movies for people so they didn't have to go out in the heat. But um, hmm. anyway, I did a lot of shows. I won a lot of awards um, for some strange reason in 12th grade. All these people who thought, you know, if you're a performer, you're, you know, queer and nobody wanted to be a performer because the school, if you weren't a jock, you weren't anyone. And it was a totally abusive hmm. town, but, hmm. Uh, school decided to do Bye Bye Birdie. And for some reason, those guys knew that it was kind of loosely based on Elvis. And all the jocks decided that they were going to be Birdie because they were the right. <laughs> and the weird thing is, is that, um, of course, I auditioned for it and I got it. And they hated me and they called me everything imaginable when I would walk the halls. And then the day came, we had to give a presentation in the gym in the new high school, and it had a huge balcony around it, and all these jocks were screaming every obscenity known to mankind at me, and I walk out in a jumpsuit that was cut down to my pubic hair and satin and showed everything that God had given me. <laughs> and I walked out there, and I sang One Last Kiss, and after it was over, everybody went apeshit and they were applauding, even these people who hated me, you know, my whole life. And it was a little bit of redemption because people would stop me in the hall and they'd say, you know, we had no idea, you know, and they realized that it wasn't something they could have done. You know, it was too ballsy apart. And, you know, that's what's always gotten me through is that kind of stuff. But the pathway of um, doing all that stuff is what brought me first to Vegas. As a kid to escape, I always saw the old movies and I thought, oh, that's incredible. But of course it'll only happen in Hollywood. 
And then in 1976, my mentor brought me here from Iowa on our way to San Diego. And we spent one entire month at Caesar's Palace. And I had a photographic memory and we went and saw every single show. And a lot of people don't realize that with the lounge shows, there were shows until 8 a.m. And we did, we, this lady and I, we went to every show and with my photographic memory, it kind of prepared me for the museum because I then moved on. Of course, after I saw the shows and I saw the people on stage, I was so blown away and I thought, my God, I don't even have to go to Hollywood because this is everything I ever saw, you know, but it's real. It's actually happening on stage. And I, you know, people don't realize how nude the shows were back then and how gorgeous all the performers were. And so that was my dream. And I moved on to San Diego and um, I was very fortunate. The most famous voice teacher was a guy named Bill Hyden. And he and Estelle May had the most famous dance studio in San Diego called Stage 7. And what I did not realize is that Bill Hyden had been a choreographer for MGM Movie Studios. And Mm. his best friend was Don Arden. And they had built this school not for little kids. They built the school for people like me who were teenagers or older than that that had a dream that wanted to perform in these shows, but never really had all the training that they needed. And so I got signed with him. You had to audition for him to be your vocal coach. And I ended up um, getting signed with him. Spent about a year just doing the vocal stuff. And then I went to Vegas on a lark and I auditioned at the Lido. And this guy named Rocky was very nice. And he's like, you're very beautiful. He said, you have an incredible voice, but he said, you look way too young. And he said, I can't put you on stage because you'll make the other performers look old. (laughs) So give it a little time and come back. And um, so I went back to San Diego. And finally, after about a year, the vocal coach said, what do you really want to do? You know, you have such a phenomenal voice. What do you want to do with all of it? And I said, I want to perform in those big shows in Las Vegas. And he said, well, then you need to learn to dance. And Mm -hmm. he sent me for the first audition with Don, which was not the one that you were excited about. um, We'll get to that. At the time, I was a high fashion model. I had a 27 inch waist and a 37 inseam and was 6'2". And I went and auditioned for Don and he said, you know, you have a phenomenal look. He never said a word about me looking too young. He said, your voice is absolutely wonderful. But he said, I cannot put you in the show as a chorus performer, like just a regular singer. He said, you are a lead, you're a principal. And Mm -hmm. he said, as a lead, you have to learn to dance because principals have to do everything. And so he made an arrangement with Bill Hyden that I was put on scholarship. And in a month's time, I went from being one of the, you know, most amateur dancers to being one of the most advanced dancers there because they were unbelievable. At one time, 70% of all Don Arden performers had trained at that school. 
He just knew exactly what Don wanted. And they even would come to that studio and audition at that studio because they knew that they wouldn't take on people unless they were the correct height, the correct look, and they knew how to do the type of choreography that he used in his shows. And it, it, it's really weird because it, the world is so small because years later when I had my show at the Dunes, I hired people not knowing that they had trained at stage seven, just at different times that I had. My lead featured nude was um, Cindy Tart, and Cindy Tart had been, of course, in a lot of shows, Lolito and what have you, but I had never met her. I knew nothing about her, and lo and behold, I learned that she was also a stage seven dancer. So I had a wonderful place to get training, and it was a very exciting time, and many, many things happened, like working with Eartha Kitt, and bizarre things and oh the stories I could tell you but trying to stay a little bit on track um, <laughs> I finally ended up going and auditioning for oh when I auditioned for Don the other thing that he was upset about is that I was so skinny and you know as a high fashion model which is what I did you had to be skinny and he said no you have to beef up and he made arrangements for me to go to the gym and work out. And um, finally, when I went back and I auditioned again, now you got to realize I I've never been in one of these huge professional shows. I had no knowledge of the process that you go through. I only knew that, you know, as a, as a singer, you had to go in a suit. You had to look your absolute best. So I go there as a singer wearing my Bill Blass Navy pinstripe jacket. I'm wearing brand new white pants. Of course, it was the late 70s. So I'm wearing like three inch platform white shoes. <laughs> and I get up on the stage and people don't understand. You would because you were there back in the day. But they don't understand that Jubilee at one time when you went to audition, there was anywhere from 800 to 1,000 people in the audience. Yeah. Of course, there were different categories, but they were all there and they were watching the auditions. <coughs> and when it was my turn as a singer, you have to have sheet music that the piano guy would play while you were singing. And I get up on that stage and I was always Never, ever, ever did I ever have stage fright when I had the job, but I always had stage fright when I auditioned. I was always scared to death. And, you know, Don had a reputation, even though he had always been wonderful to me. But, you know, he still, you know, could scare you a little. Mm -hmm. And so I get up on that enormous stage at Jubilee, and here's all these people, and a lot of them were friends of mine that I knew from stage seven and and other connections. And he has me sing a song. If you were a singer back in the day and you got past two counts of eight, it was a miracle because he didn't like to waste a lot of time. He had a lot of people to get through. But the first song I sang, he let me get through the entire song and it really kind of wow. surprised me. Yeah. And he knew that I was theater trained. And I don't know how I, this dumb little kid from Iowa knew it, but um, he says over the mic, he says, now show them 
what a professional you are and sing me a ballad. And I don't know how I knew, but I turned off the microphone. And then I filled that entire Jubilee showroom with just my voice. And okay, course, people need to know how huge that showroom is. That's not like a regular musical theater. That's a huge theater. Okay, I'm just impressed by that. So go ahead. And the people, <laughs> you know, were applauding and all that kind of stuff. And then he says to me, remember what I'm wearing? He says to me, okay, show them you can dance. Because that's what he had been behind was me learning to dance. And so I knew you had to do PK turns and Sinead turns. So I started off, I did a few PK turns and then Sinead turns. I went into Grand Jeté turns. And then by that time, I was all the way upstage on that empty stage. And here I am in my three and a half inch platform heel, you know, shoes. And I did a jazz combination downstage. And at the very end, I did a bot ma past my head into the splits. And I always <laughs> had a problem that if I did anything stupid, the ballet teachers hated me because I got this nervous laughter. Well, when I went into the splits, I ripped out the entire side seam of my pants. And I had a habit that I never wore underwear. Oh. So, it was the downstage leg, and I had to walk over to the piano and get my music. <laughs> so I get this nervous laughter, and Don is on the speaker, Bluebell's there, Fluff's there. He's on the speaker saying, there are only two performers like that, you and Alberto Steffens. And Alberto Steffens was a guy I was madly in love with. So it was, to me, the biggest compliment that he put us <laughs> together in the same sentence. But he's going on and on. Never once does he say anything about, you know, come to my booth. I get the music and I walk over and I will not say his name, but this jerk came over and bitched me out in front of all these people. And being I came from an abusive home and an abusive town, it was very humiliating to have somebody bitch you out in front of, you know, people that knew me. And so I was extremely embarrassed. And with all the accolades from Don, it didn't really matter because this guy basically, you know, told me I did something really wrong. He was like, you're 6'2". You don't need to wear platform shoes and don't you ever wear them on Don Arden's stage again. Ironically, many years wow. later, I would save this guy from going to jail basically because he had been accused of stealing costumes from Jubilee. And the more ironic thing is, is in 1992, he was my absolute best friend, was his lover at one time. And he had gotten blackballed in town, ironically, from Fluff, and could not get work as a choreographer. And when I had my show at the Dunes, I actually hired him. And had I ever known that when he came over to me, his job from what Fluff told me was he was to go over and tell me to go to Don's booth. That whenever Don had a new show, Don would take the contracts for the leads with him. Because whenever he found someone who was lead, then he would sign them up. It was Coco Rico, the new show in Paris. Oh. And of course, 
I knew nothing about any of that. It was not given, you know, the information was never given to me until I returned to San Diego and the people in San Diego were so upset because they said, Don's so angry with you. Why did you leave the showroom? He had your contract. He wanted you to sign the contract, but I never knew any of that. And the most important thing is I never knew that the guy they came over and bitched me out was the guy that was supposed to have me sign that contract. So in reality, had I signed that contract, what happened later on is when Don made me move to Las Vegas and I was singing in the Cub Lounge waiting to sign my contract to go to the Lido, that is when they had the MGM fire. And all the kids that were rehearsing for Jubilee, they had signed contracts. And ironically, the guy who got my part was Alberto Stefan. <laughs> Which, you know, very upsetting, but you know. So anyway, um, I didn't learn until about a year before Fluff passed away. I never learned that that was this guy's job. He was supposed to go mm -hmm. over and have to go and signed the contract. And, you know, my life, of course, would have been completely different. There were two other occasions where Don offered me the Lido in Paris again, and both times something else fell through. So ironically, if you had gone to Jubilee, whenever I went, and I went about 12 to 16 times a year, but if you had gone, Fluff would have introduced me to everyone as one of their greatest performers. And then I would say to her, no, Fluff, you offered me the job three times and it never happened. Oh and gosh. I am proud of the fact that I was the caliber of what they would hire as a principal, but I just had rotten luck when it came to contracts with them. And, you know, the ironic thing is, is that I have learned through the years that I had a much closer relationship with Don, probably because of that. Um, it didn't matter where I moved, he would call and check on me and see what was going on in my life. His lover, Walter Craig, at the time, I went as Greg. And I think it, you know, kind of endeared me to him because it was similar to his lover's name. But um, even till the, the day that the last time we met Fluff, she always called me Greg. But um, I just had a wonderful experience with them, even though I didn't actually get hired. And I did work with them a lot through the years, mostly with costume and set type things, but I still had that close relationship. And I've hired so many Jubilee dancers, showboys and showgirls for all the different events that I do. And of course, the minute anyone says that they work for Don Arden, to me, they're family. And that, that Blue Bell reunion was the most phenomenal thing ever mm. and it surpassed anything that I ever imagined going to. So shut There's, up for a no, this is so, so good. Um, because I'm, I, I'm thinking a couple of things, like you had like someone that said, you're really good at art, you should pursue this, or people that believed in you and you had those people trying to tear you down. I'm thinking of Bye Bye Birdie, but even it seems like you could have just given up but there's something that's astounding when I, because I remember auditioning for Don, I think there's maybe 300, but when you've got that many people, he sees thousands and thousands of dancers a year auditioning. So the fact that he selected you 
and really try to encourage you? Because I think he doesn't need to take the time to do that. Like he's got a million people that want that job. So there's something that must really have stood out, not just ripping your pants and not just that jazz combo. (laughs) There's something because I think they do see so many, there's so much talent. And so when they see someone that's unique that way that they're like, go take class, because sometimes they can just say, you know, how we would say, get off my stage, you're fat, you're ugly, whatever. But when he sees someone he believes in, I'm wondering if that outweighed with the awful thing. I want to call that guy a fucker. Okay, I just did. That <laughs> should have given you the message that you didn't get. But it seems like for some people, you just be like, you know what, I'm just going to go be an accountant. Nothing against accountants, but the, the fact that to have three times to not get it, but you know, you could get jaded. And if you are jaded, you know, you're, you've got a right to that. But the fact that you kind of made your own path, I would love to hear like with the dunes, like you end up making your own show that Dawn comes to see, like how, what is the hot, the, the jump that gets you from there to making, just making your own way? Well, um, one thing I want to say though, about that reunion, you know, after all the times of being promised, to be the lead performer of that Lido stage. To actually stand on that Lido stage, mm-hmm. maybe to the rest of the people, it was like no big deal. But the fact that I was able to do it and not break down crying was next to impossible. It was mm. a very emotional time for me because I finally felt like Don and you know Fluff and Bluebell were up there saying, okay, it finally happened. Not the way it was supposed to, but it was an incredible experience. When I lost the contract to go to um, the Lido in Paris, of course, I was heartbroken because the school that I was trained in, if you didn't work for Don Arden, you didn't work for anyone because they just, he was a god. And when you research him and you find out how many shows he had all over the world, and you know i was so heartbroken and being i was still a model i was an instructor here in las vegas at barbizon and a place called pygmalion institute i was stripping at bogies just anything i could do to survive because the worst thing to me was ever having to return to iowa and so i ended up going with a friend to la and on a lark we decided to go to Nina Blanchard, the biggest high fashion modeling agency on the West Coast, and just go do like a go-see, a cattle call. And when she saw my portfolio, which was over 40 pages, and you know, I never had confidence at all coming from an abusive home in, in town, but I always had chutzpah or whatever you want to call them. Most men, they hang in between their legs. And I was always just taking chances, taking risks. And I always thought as a model that because I was very good at acting and I ended up being a professional makeup artist and I learned how to control the lighting and all of that, that I wasn't attractive in my mind, but I used everything that I could to actually get hired more than a lot of people did. And when she saw my portfolio with these 40 different pictures, she came to me and she said, okay, so what's the deal? Are you a photographer? Are you a makeup artist? Um, What's this portfolio about? It's absolutely phenomenal. And I said, I'm a model. And she's like, well, why do you have all these guys in your portfolio? And I said, all those guys are me. (laughs) And she's like, 
it can't be. And I said, look at the eyes. Just look at the eyes, because no matter what, I can't change the eyes. And she's like, oh, my God. So she signed me to a contract. She told me I had to go blonde, because, you know, in California, they wanted everybody blonde. She didn't know that I was born blonde. <laughs> and so it wasn't that hard to do. But anyway, I got a contract with her. And I packed my bags and I moved to L.A. And right before I moved to L.A., the weird thing is that kind of helped me get into producing and designing shows is Ludovica and Bill Spinning were a top adage act. They had been the stars of a show at the Tropicana called the Blue Room Lounge. They were the stars of Branded. They were the stars of many shows that were in town. They were a specialty act in Casino de Paris where Ludo actually jumped out of the ceiling of that showroom and got caught on stage by two people. And, uh, I met them and she was making a white bird costume. And because of my art background and because I was too dumb to realize that sewing might be difficult, I ended up, um, she was making this costume and I said, well, I'm really sorry, but I think I could do better. And she's like, oh, so you're a designer. And I'm like, well, no. <laughs> she's like, well, then you know how to sew, right? And I'm like, no. And she's like, you really think you could do better? She handed me bags of turkey feathers, glue, what have you. Five days later, I had made this costume. She came over. She sat down in a chair and started crying. And her boyfriend, who was her adage partner, handed me 100 bucks cash. And I hadn't paid for anything. And the uh, opening day for their showcase over at the Sahara, she goes out on stage. She's crouched on the ground with her arms crossed down in front of her and her head is down. All she does is raise her head and raise her wings, her arms, and she got a standing ovation. And so everybody automatically assumed that I was this fabulous costume designer. <laughs> but of course, I, I had just asked somebody, how do you sew by hand? And they said, not at the end of the thread. You know, that was my instruction. But the weird thing is that she had been in Edith Chacon, which we would say Iris. Cone. Yes. And, oh, you know what? In Puerto Rico, I lived in Puerto Rico, and she had a big show, and a bunch of our male dancers did her show. Yeah. She was the she was the big thing there. Oh yeah, she's the most famous sex symbol ever in Puerto Rico. Well, Ludo had been her lead dancer and choreographer at in Puerto Rico. Ludo's Dominican, so she came and saw the show at the Tropicana and saw the white bird costume, and then immediately had a meeting with me where she refused to speak English. <laughs> and of course, I didn't speak Spanish. And they asked me if I could design the finale of their show was a cockfight, obviously, with Puerto Rico. Right. And I designed the costumes for them. And then she said, what about a saloon hall? You know, that type of thing. And of course, I worked at that theme park. I knew exactly what they looked like. So I could draw anything. That wasn't the problem. But of course, I'd never used a sewing machine or anything else. And they hired me to do the costumes. And they said, you'll spend an entire month in Puerto Rico. And my wonderful education in Iowa made me believe that I was going to Europe and that I would be right off the coast of Paris. Right. You talk about disappointment when I found out that it was off the coast of Florida and I was right. near Europe. I was so heartbroken. But thank God I like Latino men. <laughs> Lots of them. Beautiful, beautiful Puerto Rican men. Yes. And I ended up 
you know, doing her show for her TV show as well as her live show at the Kariba Hilton. And there's some outrageous stories about that. But when I moved to LA and, you know, in Vegas, I had auditioned for the redo of Jubilee. And when I went to do that, I'm walking along the stage, you know, we had to be in just the G string, no shoes, no nothing. And at 6-2, I'm walking along and the second cast of Jubilee, I don't know where they got these guys, but they were all Amazons. And I'm looking up at every one of them and I get to the end of the row and uh, Fluff and Don said, you know, we're really sorry, but you're you're too short. But at six two, oh. I was too short to be in the recast of Jubilee. Then I go to LA thinking, oh, I'm going to have a movie career finally because people had always said, oh, you should be in the movies. And I get there and at six two, I'm the Amazon. I did several shows and you look at the, the line of the people is at one level and then there's this crazy tree in the middle yeah. the rest of the people and it was me you know I was too tall for a lot of the film work that was there but I got hooked up with Chippendales almost immediately I'm the guy who designed the little um, bow tie and the cuffs on their wrists and really? the women went crazy over which if you knew the reality the women went nuts over the black spandex pants because it was a woman's pattern we did not have a zipper in the front. The zipper was on the side. All of the men had to, I don't know if you can say this on here, but they had to wear cock rings and they weren't allowed to wear any undergarments. So all the people could see everything that God gave them. And oh, really? Then I got into training the acts and designing. And then one night I went with a girl I was living with to the, um, Oscos, which is where they made the movie, Thank God It's Friday. And I'm dancing with her and I go into the restroom and I'm very pee shy, standing at a urinal and this short little guy comes in and it was a straight club. And he's like four feet away from me and just staring holes through me. And I turned to him and I said, do I owe you money? And he said, <laughs> no, but you're such a phenomenal dancer. I want you to be in my show. And I'm like, what do you mean your show? And he says, well, we have a male strip show here. And I was like, could we talk about this outside the bathroom? <laughs> Not while you're peeing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I go out and he's trying to convince me. And of course, I was very good at a dodge. I had um, worked with Ludovica and, and many of the people from stage seven. We had taught master classes in a dodge, doing all the tricks and everything. And because it was right on the border, it's right by the Beverly Center, but it doesn't exist anymore. But it was on La Cienega and I said, you know, the only way that I would work in your strip show, of course he didn't know that at one time I was a coin boy and had danced totally nude, but I said, is if you let me um, put a girl in the show. And he said, it's a male strip show, why do you want a girl? And I said, you're on the border of West Hollywood, which is all gay and Beverly Hills, which God knows what they are. I said, I hate Chippendales because Chippendales, if you're a man, you can go in as long as you have a female, but you have to sit all the way at the back wall. They don't want you anywhere near the men. And I said, they don't charge at that time, they did not charge a door admission. They had a two drink minimum and they had very expensive drinks. 
And I said, we do it different. If I do it, I produce a show and we charge at the door. And that way, if they want a drink, they can go buy a drink. They're not forced to do it, but we know that we're gonna get money from everybody that comes there. And I said, if you put a girl in the show with me, we can do the one thing that none of the other strip shows can do. We can say that single gentlemen and women are welcome. And then the gay guys can come in and enjoy seeing the men. The straight guys or supposed straight guys can come in and act like they're looking at the woman. And mm. what's really funny is that the woman Smart. that I hired, her name was Jane Cassell. She had never worked in our kind of show, never wore a G-string on stage. She was with the Royal Ballet Theater of London. And she was an excellent adage partner, but it was kind of hard for her to get used to being in a show with all these practically naked guys. And it went over very well, the people loved it. But then, you know, I, I learned about, you know, entertainment directors and how crooked they can be. And they wanted Jane Cassell and everybody else to hustle drinks. And that was not gonna happen with me. But then um, from my costume work and the fact that I did this show and I thought, you know, this is, this is a lot of fun producing a show because I hate it as a costume designer. You would design something for someone and they would pay you once and then they got to use it for years because I build things very strong. And I thought if I produce this show, whether I'm the star or not, at the end of the show, I own all those costumes. And because I worked with a lot of costume houses, I got hired with the uh, Hollywood Wax Museum, Movie Land Wax Museum, Fong's up in San Francisco. I worked for all of the Guinness World Book of Records museums because they found out that I had this ability to transform old costumes that they were gonna throw in the trash. And I was so anal about my abilities that I would make them look brand new and fabulous. And then they would come to my show and they would see what they were gonna throw away and gave me for free. And they're like, oh my God, I can't believe oh that I did that. <laughs> And so as the show started progressing and I started producing larger shows, um, people would just call me out of the blue and they say, you know what? If you got $875, you can own all the costumes to the Broadway show. Your arms are too short to box with God. That was Jennifer Holliday's very first show. Yeah. And, you know, LA is a very strange place. It's a wonderful place. I don't like the earthquakes. But, you know, when you're there, if you don't have four jobs, you cannot live well. And yeah. at the time, I did have four different jobs. And um, I did a ton of work and it got to the point to where I had a lover who didn't like me performing. So I didn't want to be alone. I had a psychic say, yes, you're going to be rich. You're going to be famous, but you'll die alone. And I had just split with a boyfriend. And so I was like, okay, I don't need to be in the show anymore. And big mistake because you know, you're a performer and that's one thing you never lose. That's one thing you always, love to do but there is an incredible joy when you produce shows and you know when i i had a friend that um was going to pass away and he had 
made me promise him not to leave. And everybody in LA was like, why don't you go to Vegas? Why don't you go to Vegas? Your shows are very Vegas. Of course, I was known for all the big feathered pieces. Um, I, I finally decided when he passed away, I had two attempts to get the show at the Dunes. The second attempt, I took an agent with me and made him look fabulous. And so he ended up getting the contract and screwing me out of it. And um, so the third time, I guess, was the charm. Um, I went to the hotel and proposed my show, 90 Degrees and Rising, which at the time was a book show. And they informed me the only way it was going to happen is if I put a star in the show because they wouldn't let us go tonight without a star in it. It was a four wall. It was also a union room. Uh, the time that I went in and I described my show, I had five performers on stage. At the time, Greg Thompson had a cast of 25 people on that stage. He had masked in the stage to make it as small as possible, the viewable part. And according to the people at the hotel, even though I did see the show, he couldn't even fill the stage with 25 people. I hired my friends like Mickey Adamo, Schwabel, and I had five people on stage, but because my backpacks are so enormous, <laughs> they were yeah. on stage. I had all the masking from Greg Thompson removed, and I filled the stage with five people. And when wow. the people in charge of the hotel came in, I started describing the show number by number. I had all these costumes laid out on the table. You know, I had everything except for I didn't have video of the actual show, but I, I had a lot of the show already. And um, I started describing things like the hydraulic passerella and the flying stairs and all these different gimmicks that the showroom had. And the people that were in charge of the hotel, they're like, what the hell is he talking about? And Spike, who was the stage manager at that time, he says, oh, yeah, we've got it. And they're like, well, why aren't we using it? And he said, well, because nobody knew how to use it once Frederick left. Frederick was the only one that knew how to incorporate all this into his show. And so here I am producing a multi-million dollar spectacular for a fraction of the cost because I never got paid. I don't pay myself to make the costumes. I had built a lot of the show prior to ever coming here. And um, I spent on the entire show, even though, you know, I wasn't the executive producer, Mary Adelia Mantle, who's now my business partner, she's the one, her and her mother, that came up with the money. But the entire endeavor of mounting that show, and it was very expensive, the, the hotel itself were crooks, three days of loading my show in to where half of the set and at least two thirds of the costumes never got on the viewable stage. But just for three days to move it in, they charged me $63,000. Oh my gosh. Every week they charged us at least 45,000 just for the stage hands and culinary. Um, I had to have a star. I unfortunately hired the idiot Rip Taylor that was $7,000 a week. I had two other specialty acts in the show, Anatoly and Arena, and Raziel Biktagirov, 
the only show in Vegas that had a high wire act that did a strip tease down to a G string. <laughs> wow. My show was old Vegas, very naughty, feathers, jewels, and all the skin you could handle. I had fantastic people like Liz Larkin Thorpe. She came in, I knew nothing about her. She came in and it was almost like God had given her her own personal spotlight. Mm. And the guy that I had hired, who will remain nameless, is the choreographer. He did everything within his power to try and talk me out of her and Greg Sumner. Greg Sumner, you might recall. I remember that name. The original Samson in, in Jubilee. But um, I hired them as my lead adage couple. They were absolutely phenomenal. Liz, to me, from the moment I saw her, she was nothing but a goddess. She was just, mm. the way she held herself, and even in, you know, those crappy leotards and all that kind of stuff, it didn't matter what she wore, she looked phenomenal. I lost your ticket. Oh, you're back. Um, My battery is down to 10%. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. No, so, that's okay. Anyway, that's how I met them. It's been a, you know, ever since, it's been a lifelong friendship with her. Um, all the people that were in my show, they were in other shows at the same time. So we got the creme de, de la creme. It was the most fabulous performers. And um, it was an incredible experience because it gave me a reputation in town that people knew that my shows were beautiful, even the way they were. And on the show kids, show day, which you had asked me to bring up. Um, it was kind of a, a funny thing because it was a show kid in Vegas is where they would let all these people from the other shows come in and see the show for free. And the showroom sat 640 people and that day it probably sat close to a thousand. People were sitting in other people's laps. It was very crazy. But Don Arden, the show was dedicated to Don Arden and to Frederick Apcar. And the show, I wasn't in the showroom when the show started. Don was there seated in his booth. Frederick, unfortunately, was working on a huge home up in Lake Tahoe and couldn't make it for the show kids show. But anyway, um, in the opening of the show, there was fake smoke, you know, a smoke machine. And it opened up with Liz Larkin having her back to the audience and probably one of the world's most gorgeous backsides ever, wearing an enormous headdress that all she basically did was turn around and let everybody see that incredible face and phenomenal body. And she did this very cute and adorable number. However, on the show kids show day, the, um, it was really amazing because there was a new guy working in the security booth right outside the showroom. He didn't know what was going on and they had already had a close to fire in the room when we did the TV commercial filming, the stagehands got the curtains too close to the light. And so this guy's sitting in the booth and the fake smoke set off the light that was for smoke and he didn't know what he was doing and he flipped the switch, not knowing what was gonna happen. And it was pretty amazing and I do have it on video because the fire curtain from Frederick Apcar's Casino de Paris 
starts to come down while they're performing the opening number. And it was all red and it had like this ghostly image that said Casino de Paris on it. So it was almost like Frederick somehow had a connection with God and, you know, was like, oh, no, 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 you're not going to forget me, you know. It comes down, and then I wasn't there. I didn't see what happened. They called me, and they said, the fire curtain came down in the opening. What do we do? I said, start the show over. You know, it was in the opening. Just start the show over, which they did. And, of course, the dancers were furious because they thought they were going to be late for their next show because they had another show of mine to do. But anyway, when the show was over, and I go out to see Don, he's sitting in the booth. I took this choreographer with me as well, who at one time had been Don's right-hand man pretty much. And um, I get to the booth and Don is crying. And I thought, what in the world? I said to Don, oh, I'm so sorry, was it that bad? And Don said to me, it makes me so proud to see something one of my babies do that I would have done. Oh. And it was a wonderful experience. And of course, he was just gushing. He was, he was just so emotional. And he's like, I'm so proud of you. He says, but I have something that I have to say to you. He said, you stole my music from the Lido. And I said, what do you mean? And he says, in your Aztec number, the Adage number is the music from the Lido. And I said, well, just how much money did you pay Ema Sumac to record that music? And he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I said, that is off the record of Ema Sumac. And he's like, there's no way. I spent a lot of money on that. Everything was custom done for my show. I said, I can show you the record. And I said, you know that little show you have across the street called Jubilee? And he said, yes. And I said, well, just out of curiosity, how much money did you spend on Samson and Delilah? And he says, oh, I can't tell you how many thousands I spent for that. I said, well, you might want to go out and get a record from MGM Studios called Samson and Delilah with Victor Mature and um, Hedy Lamar. I said, because it's all right off of the record. Even the part where the guy says, draw and quarter him. It's right off the record. And he's like, how do you know? And I said, because I bought the record. It cost like $200. And it just freaked me out because it was word for word what you had in what you have, because the show was open at that time, in your show. And he's like, I can't believe people would do that to me. Oh and oh. So it was an incredible experience just to have him, you know, pat me on the back, give me a yeah. big hug and a kiss and, and just go on and on about how proud he was. And of course, uh, a lot of the people that were in my show, including Liz and Greg, they had all worked for him. So it was a very emotional thing for him to, you know, be there and see that. And he's, and I, I think if he'd have seen all the sets and all the costumes, then it would have probably been even better for him, but it was what it was. Mm. And then probably the other thing you want me to talk about is the museum. Yeah, and we have to wrap this up in a few minutes. I don't want to rush this part because I want to talk about your museum and the, um, 
the showgirl, which they kind of go together. The, the PBS thing just came out because I want to make sure people see what you're still doing and how important it is and the why of what you're doing. Okay. You want me to talk now or? <laughs> no, I would love, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just want to make sure we have time because well, that part's really important that you're still doing this. Well, when I moved back to Las Vegas, I announced in Dirt Alert, which was our entertainment paper through Mark Chan, that I was going to open the entertainment, uh, Las Vegas Entertainment History Museum. And because I had collected all these costumes and sets, um, I just wanted people to remember. I never knew that Vegas would get to the point it is now to where there are no showgirl shows or spectaculars here. But I, at that time, always thought how important it was because so many people with this corporate family minded stuff had forgotten what had made the showgirl the icon of Las Vegas and how important these shows were to so many people. And I didn't want them to forget that. And I was lucky enough to hook up with another business partner of ours named Dallas Houston. He's a genius when it comes to many things, but one thing is marketing. And he said, well, your title's way too long. He said, and it's too difficult. He said, the majority of what you represent are showgirls and showboys of stage and screen. He said, why don't you just call it the Las Vegas Showgirl Museum? And so that took, you know, precedent. And he said, because anybody that comes from anywhere in the world, they know what a showgirl is, or at least they have the concept of what they think a showgirl is. And so we started, you know, working on getting more serious about it. When we bought this uh, mansion, um, Mary Adelia Mantle and I, it was, uh, the house is over 7,000 square feet. And the whole purpose was to get rid of paying rent for my apartment, get rid of paying rent for um, our business and try to move everything into one location. And that was good in the beginning except for the simple fact that as she got on board, although I had a lot of stuff prior to meeting with her, when she got on board, she actually had credit cards with big amounts. Um, just so you know, we're the only company in the United States that has the legal right to own the Lido Jewels. And just the Lido Jewels alone cost $40,000. Wow. And, um, it was funny because at the auction, Georgie Bernasek, who again is a Don Arden performer, absolutely phenomenal. She went to Mary D and she was like, I hope you know you broke the heart of all these Lido showgirls. And I want to know, you know, who are you and why did you, you know, do this? Because they had pulled their money together to try and buy the stuff and they were going to like send they would send Sherry, you, a bracelet. They would send somebody else a pair of earrings or whatever. That's what they intended on doing with it. And the minute that um, Mary Adelia said, well, I didn't buy them for me. I bought them for Grant Filippo. She was like, damn him. He has everything. And then she, <laughs> she said, but you know what? He'll keep it all together and he'll make sure that everybody will be able to enjoy it forever. And that is the whole purpose of the museum, not just the Lido, but everything else is to tell the story of everybody, just like what you're doing today, to let people experience 
how they got into the business and what their life was like in the business and how phenomenal every aspect of our business is. And about two years ago, PBS contacted me and they um, said that they wanted to do a documentary on Showgirls. And we've worked with them, giving them film footage, giving them photos, giving them any and everything. And about a year some odd ago, they said that they could not get the rights to any performance numbers. And of course, being PBS, it couldn't be topless. And they said, so we're gonna trash the documentary. And I said, why would you do that? And they're like, well, because we tried to get footage from Jubilee, we tried to get footage from all these different people, and they all want money. And I said, yes, but you're talking to a producer, director, designer that owns over 40,000 costumes, knows practically the majority of Jubilee dancers from the past you know, decade or two. Um, that are still fabulous and incredible. I said, I guarantee you that we could have them do two production numbers using all of my costumes and my set pieces and get them because of their love for their career and the past, we could get them to sign their rights away so that we together would own the rights for the footage that we shoot. And would that work with PBS? And she went and talked to the Biggie Wigs and they said, well, if you guys are willing to do that, because of course they had the studio, they had the camera people. And I talked to the kids and the kids just jumped on it. The show kids all wanted to be a part of it. And that's what we did. We did two complete numbers for them. And then that's the footage, a lot of the live footage that you see, or not live, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. You see in that, and that's what made it so that they could finally complete all the editing and get it approved to be released. And right now it's only, um, well, it's supposed to be only Nevada, but ironically it ended up on YouTube and PBS made the decision to make it available to any and everybody. So um they are going to have hopefully a national release where it would go national in the United States, but anybody with YouTube or the internet that could go to pbs.com, they can find it there. It's called The Showgirl, a Las Vegas icon directed by Heather Caputo. And they will see so many people that they worked with in the past, even from you know back in the day and hear the stories of what people had The only thing that's sad is I don't believe anywhere in there, I think it was an oversight, that they mentioned Don Arden's name, which, you know, Mm -hmm. I said it a million times when they were filming me, but it's the only thing that I think is kind of odd because I've asked other people if they ever heard Don Arden's name, and they don't. Of course, Fluff is is, um, a part of it. She's in the documentary. I think they definitely mentioned Bluebell, but um, it has been pretty amazing ever since it came out a week ago today. It's just astronomical the amount of people that have called and emailed and (coughs) they're so proud that they were a part of it or that they got to see the shows or that they get to see the documentary. You know, it's just had a really overwhelming effect and 
this is the first program that they ever did that they actually have been um, contacted by Netflix. And really? Netflix wants it. And so hopefully it'll end up on Netflix, which will go to a whole nother audience. And um, the only thing that's discouraging to me about it is they talk about it as if the showgirl no longer will ever exist in Las Vegas. And I'm not talking about those how do I mm-hmm. <laughs> the sidewalk that I can't stand. But um, the reality is, is that um, they don't know me. I've already produced a show on the strip. Um, one of the youngest producers ever to produce a multi-million dollar equivalent of a spectacular. I will definitely do it again. I am already in negotiations with my backer who says as soon as they come out with a vaccine, then he would invest the money into it. And the showgirl will return to a Las Vegas stage if it's the last thing I do. And, you know, hopefully pray to God, there'll be enough people that support us and are um, putting out wonderful, positive vibes so that we get our public venue because our intent is never to have it in my home. Um, The intent is to have it in a public venue. And if you, I don't know if I sent you the, we call it the experience, but yes. you see what it's going to be compared to what it is currently. There will be kids coming into that museum that were in the shows or part of the shows and they will break down crying because we're going to basically make it look as if the shows are back and came back in the form in which they performed. And I'm kind of a weird collector because I produce shows. I didn't just buy one of a costume. When I go in and somebody's offering me stuff, I buy all of them. When they changed out the original opening of Jubilee, I went and I purchased all of the costumes. So when we're in a public venue, not the home, if you come in the home right now, you get to see almost 300 costumed mannequins. But the reality is when you go to the public venue, instead of you seeing one Tootsie costume, you'll see 15 Tootsie costumes. Instead of seeing one Alexander's Ragtime Band costume, you'll see a multitude of them. Entire sets will revolve. We're even putting live showgirls and showboys in with Mm. the mannequins so that as the stages are revolving, They'll stop for a moment and the showgirl or showboy will come to life and talk to the people in the audience and tell them what it truly was like being backstage and going through auditions and doing all those things. So we really want people to come in and it to just give them chills that they think coming out of the ceiling, coming out of the floors. They don't know from one moment to the next what's real, what isn't. The walls will revolve. Every special effect that was ever used in a spectacular will be used in that museum. Oh my gosh. There's something that feels like the timing. I did an interview earlier with one of the current dancers at the Lido de Paris, but we're reimagining uh, and it doesn't mean it went away. I think there's a desire for what was past and not just in a romantic way, making it better than it was, but like, no, it really was exceptional and it's hard for people that didn't experience that to know how spectacular, that's the only word I can think of, 
But the fact that you're doing that, and I think I look at Karen Burns, and I'm looking at uh, Christopher Nunez, which is, wants to do a musical, Luann, um, I can't remember her last name right now, Hen Hendrickson, that has, there's people that are like preserving with, with a lot of, um, it's not a financial thing, it's a, a passion and a love for what it was, and the importance of preserving and just like hearing these stories, like of, of some of the people I've interviewed that are 80 and some that are current, like there's this legacy that would love to see go on and on. But for people who didn't experience to have the, to get to experience that, that Vegas was not only Cirque du Soleil, that there was this whole decades of, of the beautiful, <laughs> the what? You just said another rotten word. <laughs> Uh-oh, which one? Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, and it was weird to go in there like a few years ago and there'd be like one Cirque show and then I went and saw Jubilee and then uh, I went when a friend of mine was in the Rockettes that was at the Flamingo for a while. Right. And then to go a few years later and there's less of the shows and more Cirque and I'm just, nothing against Cirque, but it's like, how many of these shows do we need? Like there was no option and like the magi magicians and other things that were just such the, you know, those big shows that your that your only choice was Cirque was like well what if that's not all I want to see? Another it's, thing that I love is that when we were in Paris last year, is just to see the resurgence of the cabaret shows in Europe, and you know I really truly don't believe that that form will ever die. Um, you know if people don't you know it's funny I've had. Um, shows stolen from me to where they get a hold of a book that explains everything about the show and then they have the, you know, whatever, to contact you and say, oh, can you rent me the costume? And then they lie and say that they came up with the idea for the show, but um, I'm not going to name names on that either, but it's really funny because it's sad to say, and I love the performers in the Lido that we saw, but unfortunately, mm -hmm. you know, people can have all the tools and the right showroom and, and this incredible history to create something that is phenomenal, but they don't all have the ability. They don't all have the, the knowledge to do something like Don Arden did, like Frederick Apcar did. So you can have millions and millions of dollars, but it doesn't guarantee that the show is going to be this homage to these fabulous shows. It's not going to be guaranteed that way. I remember the lead singer, um, Paul Winnie, who's from Australia. He's the lead singer in the Lido right now, or at least he was when we were there. And I saw this performer and, you know, as a producer, you're always looking for talent. And he was so phenomenal and he stood out so much and yet he wore a bellman's outfit for the entire show. He never got to show the phenomenal body he has or the incredible you know, um, presence that he can do on stage because he was wearing this ridiculous costume for the whole show. And that to me is heartbreaking. When you look at the old videos of the Lido you look at the old videos of Follies Bergere and Casino de Paris and all these incredible things. And then you go see something and it's, it's just not there. It's not 100%. I think it's very heartbreaking. And another thing that I should mention is, you know, we're, we try to cover all aspects of this industry. And we're so proud of the fact that 
we own. We just acquired Jacqueline Duguay's actual costumes and jewelry, all of her film and photo archives. And, you know, she had a phenomenal career as the lead of Casino de Paris in Paris, the Lido in Paris, Casino de Paris here in Las Vegas, Viva La Girls, um, Bear Touch of Vegas, and I mean, shows go on and on and on. And unfortunately, she died a year ago on August 14th. But we're so proud of the fact that we have many of her costumes on display. And if people go to our Facebook page, they can see all the photos that we've been posting. And it costs absolutely nothing for them to do that. And of course, eventually she'll have her own gallery, just like, you know, Lean Renault is another one that we've contacted. She doesn't own a lot of her costumes, but she is somebody that I've met in person and love and adore. And, you know, we want those people to be remembered just as much. And, mm. you know, the wardrobe people and the acts that play the shows and the stagehands and the lighting directors and the designers, we want people to understand the entire industry so that if it ever does become a true lost art, they'll be able to go one place and they'll be able to learn about it all and maybe they'll have the, the brains to turn around and do it again. <laughs> so, Grant, this has been wonderful. I love that I learned so much from everybody I interview, like things I didn't know. And I think when I was in that life, I did I had no idea of, of the history, which I'm sad because I feel like some of the younger ones know more than I did. And some of us didn't really know what we were a part of. So if people are going to look for you, you've got Instagram and Facebook of Show, Las Vegas Showgirl Museum. We have our website, which is lasvegasshowgirlmuseum.com. The nice thing there is you can kind of get a little bit of an idea of how we intend on doing uh, a piece of the museum in the future. Any of the costumes that are heavily jeweled, beaded, or sequined will be on revolves either individual revolves or the entire stage will revolve. And if you go to the website, you can actually look at the videos there and you can see these phenomenal costumes doing that um, and see how they play to the light. Yeah. So, I'm so excited to come down and see the one in your home, but then to come see this new one when it happens because I know me and a lot of, like we, we want to feel, we want to see it. We want to be close to it. We don't, like, I feel like a lot of us, you know, that live that, it, it's, um, like you said, it's emotional. So I'm so grateful to you for preserving that and for, like, just what you shared with us today. Because I, I did this for Marissa um, Burgess because she was not a bluebell. Uh, her sister Karina was, and she was too short. So then she was a principal at the Moulin Rouge. And so I dubbed her, which I have this magic stick, I dub you a bluebell Kelly boy and just now that I'm picturing you standing on the stage in the Lido it makes that story even more beautiful that you got to experience that because who knows if you had been a, if you would have done these things if you had been in the shows but you are such a bluebell lineage Kelly boy if you were in the show or not just how connected you are through through all these stories so I want to thank you so much for your time today and for your stories and I will be following and hopefully more people will check out your museum and support well, and and thank God for Lindsay Raven. 
Yes. Oh my gosh. I think she gets mentioned almost everything, yeah. every one of these, because I think we will never be able to express to her oh, I know. what that reunion meant to us. My friend, uh, Steve Veter, who you should interview, you know, he was a, a Kelly boy. He was in the Lido in Paris, as well as the Lido here in Las Vegas. And he actually lived in Madame Bluebell's um, servants' quarters at her apartment in Paris and has unbelievable stories about how she was able to buy from the Lido every year entire sets of the body jewelry for one dollar. Oh entire God. set. <laughs> Please <laughs> hook me up. This is what I feel like every interview yeah. I get to meet more people. I would love to hear that story. Yeah. Oh. And, you know, even for him, we're sitting here and we're like last year we were in Paris and how heartbreaking it is and how grateful we are that COVID waited a year to come around. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Whatever it was, because it we was really an unbelievable experience and so many phenomenal people that we met. And, you know, we get over 40,000 people a month that go to all the different um, things we have. And just to have people run up to you in the Paris Opera House and say, oh, my God, you're Grant Filippo. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And they're like, <laughs> I don't understand. You own the Las Vegas Showgirl Museum. And I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, I know. And it was just like automatically I had a family that yeah. was a supportive family. You know, yeah. they, they love going and looking at all the things in the galleries. I mean, there's hundreds if not thousands of pictures on Facebook just in the galleries and and you know it's it's a wonderful experience we have another thing that I'm very proud of is we bought many of Don Arden's things from his estate in um, Palm Springs we have his actual clothing we have the photo albums from when he was a baby and got into school and got into dance class and then got a line of girls that worked with him as an act until he actually got the big shows and pictures from all over the world. And, you know, his trophy from Hollywood for the most spectacular show in Las Vegas. And personal photos of him and Bluebell and Fluff. And, and you know, it's for me, I just want to keep these people alive no matter mm. what. I want them yeah. alive so that people understand all of that. And there's so many people like us that, you know, our experiences may be a little different, but we have this connection that is an incredible connection. And that's something when we have people come in that are ex-show kids, many of them find something here that they actually wore on stage and they start crying. Oh. It's so magical because it doesn't matter what age we are now. I'm 62. There are people that have come here in their 80s and 90s, but they see something and it doesn't matter what their age is. Immediately, they go back to the age they were when they were in these shows. Immediately, they start remembering things that they didn't think they could remember for years because it just sparks something inside them. And to listen to them, that's the inspiration I get because it's so wonderful to hear them talk about what life was like back then and how much fun they had. And, you know, everybody had a wonderful experience no matter what. And even me with, you know, my misfortunes, I still am so proud of everything that 
happened or didn't happen. And I just think it's important that everybody remember that because, you know, our industry isn't a normal industry. It is yeah. to us, but it isn't to the general public. But, you know, ironically, when those straight men come in that know nothing about show business and they find out that you girls were wearing costumes that were welded and soldered and weighed a lot of weight, <laughs> just did it so elegantly and beautifully. It's amazing to see that they jump on board and they're like, I want to be a part of this. I want to, you know, yes. be able to see these people. And, you know, when I, the first podcast that you did that I listened to was Pete Menifee. Mm. I loved it. I just thought it was so incredible to learn things about his past that I didn't know about. And, you know, we have so many of Pete's designs in the house and I'm so proud of it. And hopefully pray to God. He's been invited. I don't know how many times, but hopefully pray to God. He'll actually get to come. But, you know, he's a fabulous designer and a wonderful person. And like me, it makes me proud because he was actually a dancer. And just like me, it's always important that people realize, no, I was actually a professional singer and dancer. I'm yeah. The guy that worked at a museum and said, oh, I'll do my own. You know. <laughs> no, I love how attached you are to the stories and the history. And I want to thank you again. And I hope people check out your museum, check out your website. And Grant, thank you so much. I, the best for you. And I'm, it's going to keep going. So as I bid you adieu, and I dub you as an as a official Kelly boy with a power that I don't really have, but it's intention, <laughs> <laughs> that you are now officially you always have been one of us. So best you, my friend, take care. My battery is at the last tiny bit, even though I plugged it in. So I think I'm losing you. So All right. you take care. And when we get on the other side of COVID, we'll have a lot of fun stories that will keep growing. All right. Take care, honey. Thank you. Bye.